This is a Federal News Network podcast. Congress has so far been unwilling to go along with a national minimum wage of $15 an hour. The Biden administration last year imposed one for the federal workforce and for contractors. My next guest says this could result in reduced services and flexibility for the government itself. Rachel Gresler is a research fellow in economics at the Conservative Heritage Foundation, and she joins me now. Ms. Gresler, good to have you back. Thanks for having me. All right. So the $15 minimum wage for federal employees and for contractors, what's your take on the effects that it could have? Well, I think this is actually one situation in which the federal government is not going to be immune from the same effects that the private sector experiences. Whereas a mandated minimum wage, $15 an hour here, is going to force them to have to make some tough decisions, particularly in the short term, because their current fiscal year budgets are already limited by what Congress has allocated to them. And so they're going to have to make some of those choices that private sector businesses do. Normally, that means you lay off workers, you get rid of the least experienced ones, you cut hours, you cut health care benefits or retirement benefits. Some places go out of business entirely. So the agencies, they're limited. They can't simply fire federal workers. That usually takes about a year and a half. They can't change the benefits packages. So they're probably going to have to cut some services. And the department that is going to be most impacted by this, 84% of the employees that will be subject to these higher wages are in the Department of Defense. So they're going to have to make some tough decisions about squeezing those budgets. And this could compromise their ability to maintain their readiness in a time that's problematic. Well, this 84 percent of the people that would be affected in Defense Department, what's the nature of the people that are at that minimum wage level in the first place? What is it they do? Generally. Well, this is primarily, you know, service-oriented jobs. Think about the janitors on the bases and things like that. And it's not necessarily even people that are in the Washington, D.C. area where we have a higher cost. So these tend to be lower-wage jobs. They're often jobs that are stepping stones. It might be the people who have just started out. But $15 per hour in the federal government is not the same as $15 per hour in the private sector because federal employees actually enjoy extremely generous benefits packages. And the Congressional Budget Office has done a study and they said that for those individuals who are federal employees that don't have any more than a high school diploma, they actually receive twice the level of benefits packages as their private sector counterparts. So really $15 per hour here translates into between $45,000 and $55,000 per year in compensation for these federal workers who are often performing lower level service jobs. And you mentioned it takes a year and a half to fire someone, but that would be for cause or for performance issues. If a agency is unable to make a payroll, I guess it could lay off people for economic purposes, and that would not take a year and a half. Do you envision that happening? It's possible. They sometimes have done a reduction in force. The problem with that is that when that happens at the federal level, it just tends to be the unions that get to dictate who gets laid off, and it's not based on productivity here. And so that gets to the issue of the federal government doesn't really have a productivity-based pay scale. People's wages don't reflect what they're actually contributing. And that's the problem with the whole structure here is it's great when people receive pay increases because they become more productive. But if you're simply paying somebody more to do the exact same thing, that simply leads to inflation. And so while this executive order is for a limited sector of of the economy, federal employees, and only a small portion of them will it actually impact. 
overall, raising wages, raising the mandated minimum simply leads to inflation. And we already saw that happen with misguided COVID-19 policies that paid people more to be unemployed than to actually go to work. And so what did that do? It made employers increase the amount of wages that they paid for entry-level positions. We saw McDonald's offering $15 an hour, $1,000 signing bonuses, all of these things. And so, yes, workers have received above average pay wage increases, but their real pay is actually declining. They can purchase less because the pay raises have led to inflation. 60% of the cost of goods and services is labor. And so we're all experiencing the negative impacts of having to pay people more to do the exact same thing instead of having productivity-based wage increases, which help everybody. We're speaking with Rachel Gresler. She's a research fellow in economics, budget, and entitlements at the Heritage Foundation. And what about the $15 minimum wage for contractors? I mean, at the professional services level, there's probably nobody priced out on a contract at that level. It would seem like this would affect more of the same types of lower level types of services, landscaping, food service, and so on, that are often contracted out? Yes. And so that's exactly the point there is that it's getting at the lower skill entry level jobs and it's raising the cost there. And so it's forcing taxpayers to simply pay a higher price than they need to for things. But it does have some spillover impacts too, because we're often talking about large organizations that are providing these services. And if they can't pay workers differently based on whether or not they're on a federal contract or they're not. And so it really leads to wider spread wage increases and therefore more widespread price increases across the board. Yeah, the rule is not just for labor pursuant to a federal contract, but for that company, if it has Mm -hmm. any federal contracts, correct? Correct. And then you get into the issue of, well, if the federal government kind of extends its tentacles into all these different areas of society where it has contracts, they're kind of able to dictate a large portion of the compensation packages of workers across the board. And I think that that's what's particularly troubling now is that unions act as cartels and we're seeing the government kind of creating ways in which they will only pay for things if they are performed by unionized labor, that's simply driving up the cost. And so it's not only within the federal workforce, it's not only within federal contractors, but it's getting out into this you know, trillion dollar infrastructure package that now we're being told this can only be performed by unionized labor, which all that does is drive up the costs and limit the supply of it. But I guess the administration would argue, well, that's the point. We care less about the costs than about the fact of the benefits that this gives to, as they perceive it, society and, you know, unions, the people that gave us the weekend. (laughs) Yes. And and that's where we're seeing, though, that this argument falls apart when they say we want to increase wages because it's the right thing to do. People should be able to have a, quote, living wage. We all agree that higher wages are a good thing and we want people to be able to earn them, but you can't artificially impose them because all that does is lead to inflation. And that inflation has actually left workers with lower wages. Yes, their paycheck looks higher, but it buys them less at the gas station and less at the grocery store. And so just the simple economic reality of this is you can't raise wages by legislation or by fiat. The way that people get higher wages is by becoming more productive. And that's through things like not double taxing investment, through letting people work the way that they want to. And that's the opposite that we're seeing from the current administration in terms of their agenda. They would rather either force other people to pay the price of something 
you know, say, well, have a government subsidy for it. Well, that's not reducing the cost. It's reducing what somebody pays for it, but it's just making somebody else pay for it. Or we're going to artificially increase wages here. In the end, somebody's paying for all those things. And what is the better solution is say, how do we help people become more productive in this process? Rachel Gresler is a research fellow in economics, budget and entitlements at the Heritage Foundation. You're going to be provocative, but thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to her analysis at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI, and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. 
Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. 
And we left the meeting and we were walking back to the office and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now. Now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time.